0: visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month that's betterhelp h e l p one size
1: fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com
0: Hello, and welcome again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to choose five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule, four things that they cherish, and one that they would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. Doing that for me in this episode is the comedian, writer, and producer, Izzy Mant. ...who has been performing on the UK stand-up circuit for the past four years. Her hour-long show, Polite Club, was a sell-out success at the 2019 Edinburgh Fringe. She's also a highly successful producer, having won two BAFTAs for Harry and Paul on the TV... ...and The Dark House on radio, an interactive radio drama that she co-created and directed... Izzy was also nominated for a BAFTA for Peep Show and produced Bad Oats, Toast of London, The Windsors, Cuckoo and Game Face. So she's pretty much been at the forefront of TV comedy for a good while. And now as a writer, her comedy drama series, Save Sasha, is currently in development. So, as you can see, Izzy doesn't believe in resting on her laurels. Well, resting at all, in fact. So let's find out what five things Izzy Mant would like to put in her time capsule. Izzy, it's really lovely to have you on my time capsule. I've been a great admirer, I have to say, of your intelligence for many years. Oh, thank Uh, you, When we worked together the first time, I, I spotted you immediately as somebody, I thought... Uh, should be going places and I'm delighted to say you have been those places
1: well thank you yes what did we work together on first it was a a reading wasn't it of a BBC sitcom yeah a
0: long time ago in the days when nobody took any notice of you (laughs) (laughs)
1: But people have been taking notes of you for a long time by that point.
0: Yeah, they go, oh God, here he comes again, quick, everybody move.
1: (laughs) Yes, that was probably one of the many things I spent a lot of years developing things that never quite got to screen or, you know, didn't get beyond a pilot or, you know, that's most of developing comedy. And I think it was one of those things, wasn't it?
0: It's a frustrating time though, isn't it? And I do remember with that project, you phoning me and saying, I'm terribly sorry, but now they've got a budget you're not famous enough.
1: <laughs> I don't, I'm sure I didn't put it like that.
0: <laughs> I, well, I, I knew what you were saying.
1: I'm much more diplomatic than that.
0: <laughs> you were, but I knew exactly what was being said. <laughs> but also the very annoying thing, the fact that they weren't taking you with it.
1: No. Well, I wasn't on the staff at the BBC. I mean, that's happened to me a lot. I've always been a freelance as a producer. So there's various things where, you know, I tend to get quite involved in the script development, particularly if it's a new series or a pilot. Mm-hmm. But because I'm freelance, once it gets up and running and it's commissioned as a series, it's cheaper for them to get someone from within the production company who's, you know, whose wages they're already paying. Yeah. But anyway, that makes me sound better. I'm not better. I get no, to work no, on no. things at an early stage, which is the best bit.
0: Before it gets really dull, when you have to do all the proper work.
1: Well, it's true. Actually, as a producer, you're supposed to like filming best. Most producers I know say, "Oh, that's the." best bit when you've done all the hard work and you could just watch the filming come together and happen and it's all wonderful and you can sit back and put your feet up and i'm like no i i actually like my favorite bit has always been working with the writer or writers and developing and you know casting that sort of early creative stuff and when it gets to filming i'm always just cold
0: (laughs) (laughs) it is oh god it's too early i'm too cold (laughs) yeah i do love
1: working with actors of course i'm not just saying that because it's you But it is always cold when you're filming, I find. Mm.
0: That was demonstrated to me when we did this, because I said to you, this is the idea, and you then started emailing me and saying, has anybody done this? Who's doing that? Do you think this is a good idea? And actually, very few people do that, very few. But you did... That thing that almost certainly makes you a good producer is just, I'm just going to check this little detail with you. Yeah,
1: that probably is a bit the producer coming out, but it's also, I think now that I'm a comedian and writer, there's a bit of that as well. You want to make sure what you're doing is original, you know, Um, particularly as a comedian. Yeah. The last person on, if you didn't see their set and all their jokes were about ducks you don't want to do your duck bit you know <laughs> it's going to go down like a lead balloon so
0: you know. yeah no, it's good very useful i think okay well let's start let's find out what your first item would be to go into a time capsule
1: okay my first item is going to be theater wings Mm not just the wit doesn't have to be an old-fashioned proscenium arch wings any kind of threshold between a performance space and the outside world that sort of hinterland that you yes, get yes
0: the place where you wait just before you go on
1: exactly i'm someone who got the performing bug early in life and then wandered off in a slightly different direction working with actors and scripts and so on but in a different way not performing myself and then i've come back to performing very recently, later in life, becoming a comedian. Mm. And so I think I'm sort of more sentimental about all that theatrical bric-a-brac than even, you know, you lot who've been doing this the whole time (laughs) (laughs) because I sort of went in a slightly different direction. And the reason that I sort of represent that with the theatre wings is I remember my first moment of getting that sizzle of, this is live theatre and this is something I want to be a part of, is as a child, 10-year-old dancer in panto, which I know is close to your heart, mm. in the wings at the Ashcroft Theatre Croydon, doing my first professional pantomime as one of the little dancing children. And it was the dress rehearsal. And me and the other dancers were all standing in the wings while there was a scene change going on. Helen Shapiro, who was playing Dick Whittington. Oh, my I'm word. sure you remember Helen Shapiro. I
0: do. Um, so she was back the- to happiness.
1: Exactly. So she sang that in the show, but she also sang... More of a ballad song um, called You Don't Know. I don't know if you know that song. It's a lovely no, song. I don't. yeah. And so she was, singing, she was singing it quite slowly, this beautiful ballad, you know, it was the front cloth scene. She's mm. in front of the cloth while they do a scene change behind. And in the wings, you can see both worlds. You can see the brightly lit world that the audience, when they're in, will see mm. the magic. And then behind you can see how the magic trick works. Yes. And the stage crew are doing this sort of silent. Dance behind the front cloth, wheeling in, you know, bits of set, big glittery bits of set, and flying mm. in the next cloth for the next scene, whispering to each other, kind of dancing around, putting all the props in place. And I thought, this is theatre. This, you know, and I <laughs> I was quite a dramatic child. So I think <laughs> I think I actually said out loud to myself, this is theatre.
0: <laughs> and everybody went, Shush. Shut, shut up! up. It's amazing how loud you can be in the wings, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I've stood in the wings with people and we've roared with laughter at things, and yet people don't know you're doing it.
1: Yeah, there's something special about the acoustic that makes that possible, Mm.
0: yeah. Some people sort of in a way hate that place because it's where the nerves hit them rather than the excitement.
1: Yes, but I think those nerves retrospectively... Are a wonderful thing. You sort of, uh, for me anyway. You you reinterpret those nerves as excitement <laughs> after the event. <laughs> yeah. You might hate them at the time. I mean, this is this has come back round for me. This theatre wings thing because I did my first show as a comedian and as a writer performer in Edinburgh last year. Mm. You know, my first hour long show as a comedian, and there I was in the. I mean, to call it Wings would be (laughs) a bit of a misnomer. (laughs) (laughs) Anywhere in Edinburgh. This is an Edinburgh venue. It was some (laughs) sort of conference room that had been turned into a theatre space. But actually that was part of the magic of it because the division between the auditorium and the backstage, such as it was, was just a bit of black cloth. There was no wool there. So the place where I was standing just before I went on as the audience were coming in, I was separated from the audience just by a bit of cloth so I could hear everything they said. (laughs)
2: And
1: there was this weird form of eavesdropping. And the same again at the end of the show. As they were leaving, I could hear them saying what they liked about the show... Even if they didn't like something, I would hear that and I would learn from it. You
0: know? yeah. So was there nowhere else you could go? You couldn't actually leave that area, you were just no. behind a cloth?
1: No, there was no exit from this space. So, <laughs> But actually, I really enjoyed that thrill of being, oh, here I am again, I get to do my show again for the next hour.
0: It's a brave thing to do, I have to say. You really must have had the performing bug from a very early age then. To be doing what you were doing and to be as successful as you were and then to think, no, I still want to get out there and do it myself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think actually the impulse originally to start doing comedy surprisingly late in life, I mean, start doing comedy as a writer-performer surprisingly Mm. late in life, was I think that came more from writing, than performing actually and I'd been working so closely with writers and you know doing bits of writing here and there as you do as a producer you know and you accept you're not going to get credit for that but you know that's part of if you're that sort of producer you, you know you work very closely with the scripts mm. but thinking actually I've got some stories of my own I want to tell and finally sort of saying okay now I'm more a writer than a producer um Because I started doing stand-up as part of that, because I found that a really useful way to just completely break the mould and do something really surprising and say, this is so different to producing. But writing that material, because it was very personal and it was my own worldview, I thought, well, it has to be me saying it, really. Mm. (laughs) So it was an odd way around to start performing. But, of course, there was a bit of the... 10-year-old dancer who was a show-off and wanted to get on stage, of
0: course. (laughs) (laughs) So is that mostly what you did when you were younger, just dance?
1: Yeah, I was a really keen ballet dancer, tap, jazz, you name it.
0: Fantastic. All of that. I had a very strange experience on a film. Uh, hmm, Now I'm thinking it must be last year or the year before. I can't remember. There's been this weird thing happened in between. Mm. But I was doing a film and the lead actress on it, Whose name is. Oh, oh, Izzy. Don't get old. <laughs> <laughs> Gugu Mbatha Ra is her name. And she's really quite a coming actress. She's quite big in Hollywood. And uh, I went into makeup on the first day and she was there. And I said, Oh, hello, I'm Mike. Uh, I'm playing this part. And she went, Oh, yeah, Mike, yeah. She said, I, I saw you were on it. I was delighted. And I went, Oh, good do you know my work? She said, no, I know you. And I said, where from? Yeah. And she said, we did pantomime together. <laughs> and she'd been one of the girls in the chorus. Yeah. When she was 11. Yeah. And I said, oh good, was I nice to you? And she said, you were, yeah. She said, if you weren't, you wouldn't be in this film.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I've also got a story of Panto coming back around into my life. Because Panto has also played quite a big role in my life. Really? So I did amateur Panto's, In Brighton as a child, you know, if you're a dancer, if you're a little kid dancer and you can sing a bit as well, and you know, you get roped in to do all these pantos. Um, So I've been doing the amateur ones and then I did the Ashcroft Theatre. I did that two years in a row. The first year I'd been Dick Whittington with Helen Shapiro. The second year was Cinderella. And Dandini was played by Andrew O'Connor, who Uh later went on to run Objective Productions. So many years later, I was working for Objective Productions producing Series 5 of Peep Show. Um, And I made this connection and I managed to... I got my mum to go back through all the photos and we found this photo of Andrew O'Connor in costume as Dandini with me dressed as a a rat or something. (laughs) No, it would have been Mouse, wouldn't it? Because it was was Cinderella. Um, Or I might have been Village Boy. I often got Village Boy because almost all Uh. the dancers were girls. So if you were taller you had to be village boy and i would get very upset why don't i ever get to be village girl i don't know. i don't know why i was so upset about it but you know then when i get the mouse costume i'm like brilliant you know gender neutral mouse so anyway we found this photo of of me and andrew o'connor back then i mean i always thought it was a bit of a coup that i got that job producing series 5 of peep show for me because you know i'd been plugging away in theatre directing theatre live comedy doing a bit of radio doing things like that, reading that we worked on together. But I hadn't actually done anything in television, you know, anything that was filmed and properly produced in television at that point. That was my first gig as a producer. That's
0: amazing, isn't
1: it? It was was amazing. I was so delighted to get this job. And at the time, I thought it was because Sam and Jesse said to me, you know, we trust your sense of humour, and we don't mind that you don't have a lot of production experience behind you. We know that you've done the right things in theatre and live comedy and radio to sort of have the skills that are important. And Mm. there are other people on the team who know more about how production works, and I learnt that stuff on the job. So I always thought that was why I got the job. But I'm thinking now, maybe it was because Andrew (laughs) O'Connor remembered, you know, I was his plant.
0: He just knew you had it.
1: He knew I had it because there was a certain point (laughs) in the panto you know, he'd do the chat to the audience, and he'd say, "Oh, and I must say, happy birthday to little Stacy. She's nine years old today. Wait, give us a shout, Stacy." And he'd say this every night, it was always Stacey nine years old today, I'd been snuck round the back of the theatre, I'd come into the gods just for the right moment and when he says, give us a shout, Stacey, I'd shout she's gone to the toilet! <laughs> the <laughs> whole place laugh. falls about laughing. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that's why I got the gig on Peep Show. He
0: trusted you. He knew where a gag was. Because <laughs> I think of Andrew O'Connor as a very funny performer. Yeah. And then, you know, he runs this massive television company yeah. and stops performing, rather sadly I thought. You
1: well, know. you could say sadly, but then again look at all the work that's been created by his company that's such fantastic stuff
0: true good luck to him well I- <laughs> he's not going to get this in the time capsule though you are you're going to get the wings of the theatre the
1: theatre wings
0: with a little buzz or in fact maybe give you the moment just before a panto starts so you'll have the orchestra sort of warming up perfect (laughs) (laughs) lovely not
1: just the wings but the sounds the smells everything that goes with it
0: absolutely yes and if you do panto long enough those smells are not good Nobody ever gets a chance to clean a costume in a panto. Too many shows.
1: Yeah, particularly if you're amongst the dancing children troupe. They're <laughs> probably <laughs> the smelliest of all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, OK. Well, that goes into the time capsule. Well, that's your first item in there, Izzy. So um, what's your second item?
1: My second item is a Breville sandwich toaster.
0: <laughs> Very handy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the universal symbol of studenthood um, Well, maybe it isn't now. I don't know. Maybe they get their toasties from Deliveroo now. But in the 90s, you know, it was a real symbol of studenthood, getting your own sandwich toaster. It was independence. Mm. You could make your own food in some way. (laughs) Um, And I'm putting this in the time capsule because I loved being a student. I mean, it's not original to love being a student. They say it's the best days of your life, but a lot of people don't have a good time at university. And and i just really did and i really appreciated it the whole time mm. i'd come from a comprehensive school in brighton it was just you know it was a good school it was a funny school um lots of funny t- i think a, a lot of my sense of humor that didn't come from my funny family came from my funny school so i'm not you know i don't want to speak ill of the school i went to but it was a bog standard comprehensive you know i think in the 1960s they got all the architects together and they said right the mediocre ones you do the schools. You know, it was that sort of dull, grey, <laughs> 60s blocks. Yeah. And then suddenly I, I went to Oxford and suddenly I'm amongst all this medieval architecture and all the, you know, silly ceremonies in Latin. I love the theatre of that, you know, and the tutorial system and all the wonderful things And that same child who stood in the wings going, this is theatre. You know, I would walk past the Radcliffe camera in Oxford and think how beautiful it was and go, this Mm. is Oxford, you know. Mm. (laughs) I really made a point of appreciating it and thinking how lucky I was for three years
0: lucky well you say lucky there are many people who've been to Oxford who are lucky to have gone to Oxford in as much as they went to the right school and really shouldn't have gone to Oxford
1: yeah yeah you
0: (laughs) went to a bog standard comprehensive school so there's no luck involved in this at all if you got to Oxford you bloody deserved it well done
1: well I did but the reason I'm going to put the toasty maker in Mm. is because actually that's not Obviously, exclusive to the Oxbridge experience, that's a kind of universal student thing. And when I, you know, at the time I would wax lyrical about the medieval buildings and the tutorial system and all the things that were particular to my experience. But when I look back, the things that I really, really loved about being at university were the things that apply at any university. It was, you know, the incredible friends I made and the camaraderie and the joy of learning and all of these. And I do have. My sort of happiest memories of university are being late at night in my student room with my two best friends at university, Claire and Lynette, who are great friends to this day, having an essay crisis and, you know, eating toasty after toasty (laughs) (laughs) and genuinely, you know, discussing philosophical and psychological ideas because I did psychology and philosophy You know, and that's what you always imagine a university experience to be, is talking about great ideas with your friends. And yes, I feel very nostalgic about that.
0: No, I don't blame you. When you're having those conversations, particularly at that age, you are completely convinced that you are coming up with moments of genius, aren't you? Yeah. And you may well be. Who knows?
1: Yeah, who knows? It's a sort of lack of wisdom, lack of life wisdom that you have at that age Mm. that I think enables you to have perhaps slightly more imaginative ideas about the big stuff, about philosophy and psychology and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, be bold with it. Yeah, yeah. Which college did you go to?
1: Univ, University College. Uh, lovely. Shelley the poet went there and Bill Clinton, they're probably <laughs> the two. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bill Clinton always claimed he never went into the building.
1: Is that the equivalent of not inhaling? Yeah, yeah something like that.
0: <laughs> Anybody who's been to university remembers those feelings of walking in and actually thinking... This is mine. I now control what happens in this space. Yeah. And laying out your kitchen things, your kettle, that's my kettle. It's an amazing (laughs) feeling, isn't it? You
1: feel so grown up.
0: Having never made myself a cup of tea in my life, I turned up and plugged a kettle in. I still, to this day, very rarely make a cup of tea or coffee. I don't think I ever used it.
1: What a charmed life you've had, Mike.
0: (laughs) Either that or a man who's not that bothered about tea or coffee. (laughs) Your friends, what did they go on to do?
1: Well, actually, they have actually used psychology in a way that I haven't, well, other than in in an indirect way, understanding people, I suppose. But they've both done really interesting things with it and make me feel like I slightly wasted my learning oh, no. I didn't waste my university experience as a whole
0: no clearly not I mean and in my opinion I think that university education is all about discovering where you want to go in life oh. and teaching yourself the ability to learn things on your own
1: it, yes it's a little microcosm of adulthood you get to do a sort of mini safe version of all the things you might be challenged to do in the in the wider world. Mm. Thinking about how nostalgic I am about the university experience and that thing of sitting up late, discussing ideas and so on. Years later, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine. I'll, I'll credit him because I'm going to say a funny thing he said. Uh, and You probably know him, Dan Tetzel. Do you know Dan? I do know Dan, yes. Of course you do. Um, and uh, I was talking to him about this idea I had that we all go through the sort of house share when we're in our 20s and then you know as you aim to kind of when you get a bit older maybe have a bit more money and maybe one day you can live on your own that's what most people want but actually what I want is to carry on living with people but in a more grown-up way and I had this idea about you know maybe when I'm older me and some of my best friends we could all you know buy flats in the same building or something <laughs> but then there'd be a communal space where we'd all come together you know I was describing this sort of wonderful thing and Dan stopped me and said um your ideal living situation is being at university. (laughs) (laughs) And I just realised he was absolutely right.
0: (laughs) Or eventually being in an old people's home.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) But I would insist that
1: when we all come together into the common room or whatever they call it in the old people's home, we would discuss, you know, the great philosophers. Important
0: things. Not what's on the telly, which yeah. side you want to watch.
1: Or who stole my Zimmer frame, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask you one final question then, which I think is a very important question. Um, what's your favourite filling?
1: It's got to be the classic cheese and ham. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I still, today, as an adult, I don't own a sandwich toaster, even though <laughs> I really like that way of eating bread and cheese. (laughs) You know, I can afford to buy myself a sandwich toaster if I want to, but I don't. And I think actually there's a reason for this. I think the reason that after, you know, all these years of wanting to eat toasties and not buying myself a sandwich toaster is because if I ever get married and, you know, I'm getting on a bit and it's becoming increasingly unlikely, but I've always thought that's a really convenient you know, affordable wedding gift for someone to get. And I don't want to, de- this is how polite I am. I don't want to deprive someone <laughs> of, of what would be a really easy, affordable wedding gift
0: by buying one for myself. You've <laughs> never bought yourself champagne glasses. That's the other one that everybody always has.
1: It's true, though, actually. I don't have any champagne flutes, not good ones. I think maybe <laughs> I'm subconsciously saving that up for this this fictional wedding that will never happen. You've
0: already made the wedding list. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Isn't that tragic?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're going to discover that somewhere, if we go online, you've already done it at Fenix.
1: Or one day I'll be like Miss Havisham sitting in my (laughs) cobweb-ridden room eating untoasted cheese and ham sandwiches and saying, one day it'll happen.
0: (laughs) I never eat them toasted, not until I am a bride. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Well, we'd better put it inside the time capsule and keep it safe. Oh, there we are. That's two items. Lovely. So what's number three, Izzy? Okay, we're going to interrupt this podcast for a brief ad break. We'll be back with you shortly. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Thanks for waiting. Let's get back to Izzy Mant and find out what else she'd like to put in her time capsule.
1: Number three is feedback. And I mean, I mean notes on scripts. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is something that I'm enjoying very much as somebody who, for years, was giving feedback more than I was receiving it. And now it's turned around. And now I'm a writer. I'm receiving feedback more than I'm giving it. And I'm delighted to discover that I actually like getting notes on a script. I mean, obviously, there's that, you know, painful moment of, oh, I've worked really hard on this. And what do you mean? It's not perfect. Um but that doesn't last long. And, and, I've you know, if the notes are good, obviously bad feedback is the worst thing in the world. It's just mm. frustrating. But, you know, I'm lucky so far in my writing career. I've got a script I wrote that's in development with a production company, and i got great notes from Sophie Clark Jarvis, who I'm sure you know, um, and Angela, who's in development there. And then they brought on Jeremy Dyson, a script editor for me, and I worked wow. in more detail with, with Jeremy, and his notes were fantastic. I bet, yeah. When someone really gets what you're trying to do, and is able to notice when what you're trying to do isn't quite achieved in what you've done. And you know, have really great sessions with him on the script. And so I've I discovered that I'm, you know, one of those writers who actually can work with feedback and likes getting feedback.
0: Uh, very good. And, and then as a performer, the feedback you get from an audience?
1: Well, I'm so, I'm so, I was so excited about the idea that I was now on the other side. And having given notes to actors for years, I was now going to receive notes as a performer that when I did my very first, very sketchy tryout of my Edinburgh show, two years before I actually did the show in Edinburgh, I was so nervous about it, I only invited... It was an all-invited audience to my first tryout. I had probably 15 people in a little fringe theatre above a pub, you know. (laughs) And I was so keen for their feedback that I handed out forms with a sort of set list, (laughs) because I know if I've just seen a live show... I might think, oh, there was a bit I didn't think quite worked. Or got, thought I had an idea how it could work better, but I can't remember what it was now. And there was a bit I loved, and I really want to tell them how much I loved it, and I can't remember what it was now. So I thought, well, I'll get around that by giving them a set list, and they can literally, as, I, as we go through, they can put ticks and crosses next to, you know, <laughs> cut this bit, keep this bit.
0: How did you survive watching everybody's head go down? After a joke.
1: No. That, that one's
0: gone.
1: <laughs> I survived it by... Um, I still had a script at that point, or at least, you know, bullet points.
0: Just look at the spotlight. <laughs> yeah.
1: But also it's the, you know, it's the scientist in me. Having done a science degree, I wanted mm. to do this as a sort of scientific... I knew that when you do a psychology study, if it's something involving a survey and you let people confer with their fellow subjects, they'll all come up with the same answer, that, you know, conformity is a, is a very powerful effect in psychology. Mm. So I was very clear with my audience, you must not talk to each other until you've filled in your forms.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I bet they had a whale of a time.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> that's ju- just what you want when you go to see a comedy show, isn't it? You want homework yeah. afterwards. Yeah.
0: <laughs> when you're talking round the other way, when you're the person giving feedback, do you... Do you now, see, because I'm, I'm tying this in with the fact that I know that your Edinburgh show was about being polite to everybody. Yeah. But actually, sometimes in those situations, you have to be quite brutal, don't you? So were you always, I love what you're doing with that. That was very good. But we're going to have to cut it. And I'm afraid it's my fault. Was that you?
1: Uh, well, yes. I mean, isn't that everybody? You know, We, I think anyone who gives feedback on scripts, we all employ the same tricks. And the person receiving the feedback knows what you're doing, but still appreciates that you're doing it when you give them the praise sandwich. You know, you start with... The things but things that you genuinely liked and enjoyed, I think that's important. It needs to be true. It shouldn't just be a sort of oh, yes, very well done now. here comes the criticism. Mm. um so yeah, I would start with the things that were working well and then get into the I think am I right? what you're trying to achieve here is x <laughs> you know it, it's it completely changes depending on the script, the writer, how well developed it is, you know, but yeah, the mm. praise sandwich is a pretty common trope
0: of giving feedback. Yes. <laughs> and if all else fails, you say, anybody want a toasted sandwich? They <laughs> oh, no, can't. You can't do it. You see, you didn't think it through. <laughs> anyway, champagne. Oh, I haven't got any flutes either. Damn it.
1: <laughs> but it is, it's is—it's so interesting being on the other side mm. of the feedback thing, because I really, you know, when you're primarily writing yourself, as I, as I am now, that you realise you sort of have to go through that stage of making those mistakes mm. because you can't read your own script the way an audience would receive it. And I think a lot of people make that mistake the first time. They think, I know what I'm trying to achieve and I think I've achieved it, therefore it's, it's good. But yeah. you have to, you just, everyone needs that outside eye. It needs to be the right outside eye and somebody who gets it and who's good at this stuff and understands stories, but everyone needs it.
0: Yes. Okay, we should take feedback, which, um, you know, I'm I'm proud of you for taking it so well. (laughs) Well done.
1: I mean, I say that here on a podcast.
0: I might be calling up Dan Tetzel (laughs) and just saying, you know, Dan, Izzy said she's good at taking feedback, and then I'll I'll (laughs) listen to the noise from the other end of the phone call. So feedback. Feedback goes into the time capsule. That's three items. So we've got two left, Izzy. We have something that you want to keep. And one thing that you want to put in there because you want to get rid of it from your life.
1: Yep. Okay, so my final good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when you first told me about the concept of this, the time capsule, uh, the first thing I thought of when I thought of a time capsule is something that's going to be opened by other people at mm-hmm. a later time. That's your classic time capsule, isn't it? Something yeah. you preserve for posterity for other people to open. So I sort of ran with this logic for my next one. And I thought it would be quite useful My uh, if I have a a unique angle on life as a writer. It's, you know, being someone who's single and child-free in my 40s and still dating. Hmm. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be useful, having had a number of relationships in my life, to have a sort of user manual for new partners? (laughs) So I'm making your time capsule really have a practical use here. So what people can do is they can put their instructions for a boyfriend or girlfriend into this time capsule and then at a later stage, somebody who's about to go out with that person can you know, take this out and can mm. have some handy, you know, how does this person work? <laughs> because say if you were moving into a new place, the last person who lived there might leave some instructions saying the water valve is in this weird place, or, you know, there's a knack to opening this window or whatever. And you know, you don't get that with a a partner.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A bit like those things you get in a holiday home where it says there's a really good Chinese around the corner.
1: (laughs) Very good. But if I got a new boyfriend and someone handed me a note saying there's a really good Chinese around the corner, I might think they were suggesting an alternative (laughs) boyfriend.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that may be what they're doing. And that that means (laughs) ditch him now.
1: Yeah, I'd like to say this goes both ways. So if I get to get user manuals for my new partners, they should be able to write something about me as well for future partners of mine. So they should be able to say, you know, she will always be 10 minutes late for everything. <laughs> I was 10 minutes late for joining you for this podcast. You know, this is how to trick her into being on time. You know, these would be useful things for people to know. So it goes both ways.
0: I'm loath to describe it as a sort of a visitor's book. Cause <laughs> it, but no, I see what you mean, yes.
1: Maybe user's manual is worse, actually. I don't, I don't know. This is the problem. I think if you read the instructions, sometimes you're going to think, you know, I'm reading these instructions and it's too difficult. Mm. I don't want to take this off. You know, like you might, if you were buying a new printer and you read the user manual and it's really complicated to set it up, you'd be like, I'm going to buy <laughs> a different printer. A <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: couple of relationships I've had in the past where after I've come out of the relationship... All of his friends have said, oh, yeah, he's very difficult. All his exes have found him. Why didn't you tell me this before I signed the lease?
0: (laughs) In my experience, most men are virtually impossible to live with. (laughs) Couldn't you just call it that? Don't pick a man?
1: Well, I I mean, I've never been in a long-term relationship with a woman, so I can't comment on that. I'm sure there are some very tricky women out there too.
0: I'm sure there are, <laughs> but it, it's a very difficult thing to form a long-term relationship. I think it's that thing of do you subjugate your own personality in a relationship? To an extent, is always something that you you suffer. Yeah, that you sort of go well. They do that. That's what they do.
1: Yeah, the problem is, it's all about the extent of it. You know, the things that make a relationship good are very similar to the things that can make a relationship horrendous. If it's a an unhealthy version of that. Like, of course, everyone compromises in a relationship and they find the sort of middle way and the way, you know, but but a really bad relationship will involve quite a dark form of compromise and somebody mm. not being able to be themselves.
0: It'll be one person who compromises, the other person never changes at all. I've got friends who I look at their relationship with other people. I'm not going to name any <laughs> names at all. But I've got friends and I think to myself, you know, you've got your cake and you're eating it all the time. Maybe my wife would say... That's my life, you know, if if I asked her.
1: Well, I mean, I can't comment on, on your marriage, but I suspect the very fact that you're asking that question means you're probably not one of those, you know, that you've noticed that phenomenon. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right, and I've experienced, I think, two of those, um, and... Um, If I had had the references from the ex-girlfriends, they probably would have said the compromise will be all in one direction, and I'd have said, "Okay, you know." But of course, you don't. Once you fall in love with someone, you don't notice this stuff. You know, you don't have that objective outside eye. So I think this is a very good idea. I mean, it might not be practically workable, and there's all sorts of legal issues. You know, with people (laughs) slandering their exes and putting it in some sort of fictional time capsule but uh, you know as a general idea I think it's wise
0: (laughs) we'll get round them somehow I'm sure I think it's a great idea unfortunately by the time possibly by the time they open the podcast you'll be talking about a lot of old men (laughs) I don't want to go out with him anyway but as you know as an example of what to look for I think it's a very useful idea. I'm sure there are a lot of people who say, God, I wish I'd known that then. Yeah. Yeah, so lovely. Let's put that into the time capsule.
1: Instruction manuals for new partners. (laughs) Yeah,
0: very good. In fact, I'd start a website.
1: (laughs) I mean, then you really are going to get into legal hot water, I think.
0: Yeah, but, you know, under a pseudonym. Yeah. There's always the dark web. Yeah, surely. Yeah. I have the faintest idea what the dark web is. I I'm don't sure you can I, work
1: it out, Mike.
0: No idea.
1: I mean that's what it's gonna say in your instruction manual. Mike doesn't understand the dark web. He's doing this whole podcast about a time capsule. He doesn't even know what a time capsule is.
0: <laughs> it's all true. It's absolutely true, is he? See, I've been found out. Oh brilliant. Okay, well, so we come to your last your very last thing to put into the time capsule.
1: Okay, this one I think is going to be controversial with you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put in, as the thing I don't want, the thing I want to see the back of, Yeah, is really famous people being available to go on podcasts. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay, I don't begrudge you all the wonderful, very famous people you've had on your podcast, because, you know, they want to talk to Mike Fenton Stevens and they're friends of yours. that you know that, I don't begrudge you that. But in general, here's the thing. I love going on podcasts. I've discovered it's a really fun way for me, selfishly, to tell lots of stories I like telling or maybe, <laughs> you know, impart some wisdom if I've got any. And It's just nice having a chat. It's a really nice medium. I love going on podcasts. And I, having done my Edinburgh show last year, which went well enough, that you know people started inviting me to go on podcasts. And I was like, oh, I love this. And early in the year, around January, I think it was, I heard from these two young men who are super fans of Peep Show. And they have a podcast about Peep Show. And they had been working their way through the series one by one and getting on guests. Mostly they could get people who'd played a very small part in one episode or, you know, was the assistant grip or, you know, that was the sort of Mm. level of people. No no shame on those people, but, you know, they weren't getting the big hitters. Understandably, it's just a little podcast, you know. And they came to me, and they said, Look, we've just got to series five, and we know that you produced series five. And, you know, would you do us the honour, you know, it was all very kind of kowtow of, of coming on our podcast and talking about series five. And I thought, Absolutely, I'd love to do that. I got permission from Sam and Jesse first. You know, I didn't know if they were okay. But they did it all the right way. I'm very polite, you know. <laughs> and they said, Yeah, of course, go on go on those ghost points. talk about the show. And I thought, you know what, I want to do this properly if I'm gonna do this. So I went back and I rewatched, I thought, nice excuse to re-watch series five of of Peepshow I haven't watched it for a long time mm. so I rewatched it and as I went through I kept thinking of little backstage stories and things that would be interesting to them so I would pause and I would write it down and I realized I was actually putting quite a lot of work into preparing <laughs> for appearing on this podcast yeah. and then lockdown happened and suddenly everyone had a lot of time on their hands and very famous people were appearing on podcasts and then I looked at their you know their sort of Twitter feed these guys doing the podcast And suddenly they announced, we've got Robert Webb. And I listened to it. He did a great episode. And then they said, oh, now we've got David Mitchell. And then (laughs) the big one, they got Sam and Jesse. They got the creators of the show. And I haven't heard from them since. (laughs) No. (laughs) So having put all that work in, I don't blame them. If you've had Sam and Jesse and David and Rob, you don't want somebody who produced one series. You've had, you've had all your questions answered. <laughs> but, but that's why I do begrudge famous people going on podcasts if they're taking my spots.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. I've always had the aim of making this a podcast that wasn't just about famous people, that it was about what people would put into time capsules. So, in fact, it was a game that anybody could play I've started speaking to sports people. Admittedly, they're famous, but I've also spoken to people who are very high up in the law. Yeah. And I'd like to speak to doctors and you know people who've done extraordinary things in their lives. Not necessarily famous as a result of it, but actually their life is interesting. And that, I think, would be me making this thing what I hoped it would be eventually. Yeah. In the meantime, yeah, I'm just going for the famous people.
1: <laughs> I mean, I didn't... It seems to make sense to put something that's a result of this dreadful year to be the bad thing in the time capsule. And I thought, you know, I don't want to put all the things that all of us have hated about this year. So uh, instead, I thought I'd put famous people in instead.
0: It's about time somebody got rid of them. I mean, you are right that the world is absolutely too dominated by fame.
1: I want to be clear, I'm not knocking all famous people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very specifically knocking famous people being available to go on podcasts. That's what I'm putting in. I mean, there are wonderful ways that fame can add a bit of colour to an experience. Mm. I mean, I've been lucky enough to work with lots of people who absolutely deserve their fame. Brilliant, brilliant people. And there's this weird overlap for me when I was still producing TV comedy but had had just become a stand-up comedian. But as everyone does, I was on the open mic circuit. You know, I was Mm. doing those kind of, doing my time, doing those kind of grubby gigs in basements. And I was working with absolutely top-notch comedians. I was working with Greg Davis Harry and Phil. Harry and Paul came to see one of my early gigs and heckled me. Um, (laughs) And and (laughs) there was another quite bizarre moment when um, I was working with Andy McDowell on the last series of, Cuckoo, Cuckoo yeah. yeah. And we went with her, me and the director and a couple of other people went with her for dinner in Dalston because she really wanted, she'd heard that you could get this great Vietnamese food on Kingsland Road. So we all went out for dinner. on But but before this was arranged, I had a pre-arranged gig that night, which also just happened to be on Kingsland Road. So I thought I could do, <laughs> you know, and I'm an honourable comedian. I don't drop out of a gig unless there's a really good reason. And I thought I can do both. I'll just leave the dinner early. To go and do my gig, mm. but then Andy, while we were at dinner, got wind of why I was leaving early. And oh, you're doing a gig? Where's your gig? And I thought it was actually just up the road. And she said, "Can I come?" <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and I said, "Oh no, I don't think you understand. It's not. This is not the comedy store. This is. It's in a basement in on Kingsland Road. It's that you know. It's it'll be grim." And she said, "No, no, no I'm fascinated. I want to. I want to come. I want to come." So I had to <laughs> sort of text the promoter and say, "Bit of a weird one, but." can I bring Andy McDowell? To- I know you told me that actually it's sold out and all the cha- but can we find a chair for Andy McDowell? Would that be- He said, I think we can arrange that. Wow. So I had this weird experience. She came along, she was a great sport. She just, actually when we came in, the, the gig was already ongoing. So it would have been too much disruption to sort of come in and find the chair that had been reserved mm. for her. So we just stood at the back. So she stood at the back with the other comedians and the comedian who was on when we came in just so happened to be doing a bit, I'd, I'd seen him before, he does a bit about the Magic Mike films, and she was in the last Magic Mike <laughs> film. <laughs> and, and, so he had this bizarre experience of coming off stage from doing his bit he always does, coming face-to-face with Andy McDowell.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's still lockdown. We're doing this now in lockdown, yeah. and I haven't bumped you off.
1: Yeah, thank you for not, yeah. not bumping me for Andy McDowell or whoever else was the or- <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hang on a minute, somebody's calling. Oh, right. Thanks very much, Izzy. Bye.
1: Actually, the best bit of that story is I was on a date. That was the other reason why I had to leave dinner early. I had pre arranged to meet a date, a guy who'd had a couple of dates with, and it was our third date. I'd arranged to meet him at the gig. So I had with me, you know, the heroine of great rom com films. You know, (laughs) she's all about the romance. And I'm on this date, and she knew I was on it. And She was like, where is he? Where's the guy? (laughs) He got to chat to her in the interval. You know, I I thought, like, what more can you bring to a date? You introduced your date to Andy (laughs) McDowell, heroine of so many rom-com films.
0: And are he and Andy still going out together?
1: Well, that didn't go anywhere, that relationship, so maybe that's why. Maybe yeah. he's now with Andy, I'll have to ask her.
0: I loved Cuckoo, and I particularly liked it because um, I did a tour of Amadeus, the show Yeah. many, many years ago, and understudying Constanza, Mozart's wife in it, was Helen Baxendale.
1: Oh, the lovely Helen Baxendale! The lovely
0: Helen Baxendale, and it was her first job, I think, out of uh, drama school. Wow! And what a wonderful time we had! Yeah, she yeah. was just the most gorgeous person.
1: Yeah, wonderful, wonderful, funny actor and mm. a lovely person. And it's so nice when you get that combo. In fact, on on Cuckoo, it was one of those shows where you just it was almost quite suspicious, thinking, "When's the horrible person gonna?" You know, (laughs) there's always one and I haven't worked out who it is yet. You know, sometimes it's one of the cast, sometimes it's one of the crew. And it it was just, everyone was delightful on that show. It was really nice to work on. I've been lucky with the last few things I've produced because the next thing I did after that was Game Face, the second series of Game Face, Roisin Conaty's show. And everyone's lovely on that. It's just a lovely cast on that as well. And in fact, Roisin, I had that same experience of a comedian, that overlap between working with comedians as a producer but also being a new comedian, because Rosheen came to one of my tryouts of my Edinburgh show, <laughs> and she snuck in as well, so I didn't know she was there. <laughs> God! But she was really support, gave me great tips as a comedian, and was really mm. supportive because I was I was in the edit with her for Game Face right up to you know the week before I went up to Edinburgh. So uh, you know she sort of saw me go through that process that she knew so
0: well. You're never chatting backstage, and then come across some young stand-up comedian says, um, "God." I've got to get home, and you say, Do you want a drink? They say, no, no, I've got to go, I've got to go. I'll got a big, big audition tomorrow. I've got, I'm auditioning for a part in Game Face. <laughs> <laughs> Has that ever happened?
1: No, I don't think it overlaps in that way, generally. Um, I'm still a relatively new comedian, so the sort mm. of people I'm doing gigs with... Wouldn't
0: get auditioned for Game Face, is well, no, Well, are
1: more Actually, they're more comedians than actors. That's the yeah. thing. They haven't done that, that sort of broken through. Some of them might have broken through as comedians. They might be on panel shows and that sort of thing, mm. but they haven't got to that level of being the star of a sitcom who was formerly a comedian and is now, you know, I I wouldn't have been sharing a bill with Greg Davis, so I wouldn't have found myself, you know. I'm sure it will happen.
0: (laughs) It certainly might happen if we manage to stop all famous people doing podcasts. (laughs) They'll be thinking, I've got to get some work. (laughs) Well, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to put them in the time capsule. I don't care even if it does ruin my podcast. Now, I'd like to say how much I've enjoyed doing this podcast. It's been great fun. But unfortunately, from now on, I'll be talking to my postman.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure your postman will be fascinating.
0: Yeah, Yeah. quite. Who knows? there we are then we put all the items into the time capsule it's been really lovely to talk to you about them
1: really fun to talk to you too
0: so thanks izzy thanks for doing it
1: thank you
0: you have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my guest izzy Mant. Thanks to Izzy for taking part and thank you for listening. You can hear all episodes of my time capsule if you subscribe on Acast or your own favorite podcast provider, where you can also rate us and leave a review. And if you do find the time to do that, then thanks. You can follow My Time Capsule or me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook for lots of jolly previews of forthcoming guests. The theme music that you can hear playing behind my dulcet tones is by Pass the Peas music and can be heard in full on Spotify with the catchy name My Time Capsule Theme Tune. (laughs) I guess a pulse racing, doesn't it? This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and is a cast-off production. We'll see you next time when my guest will be, well, nobody famous. Izzy put all them in her time capsule. Bye.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.